Brethren, if you would take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. We're considering this psalm tonight in its fullness. And once more, let us seek our God together that He may shine His light on His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come eagerly desiring to hear from You, to hear the truth. And Lord, we pray that You would give us those ears that would hear. We pray that You would cause our hearts to take in who You are and what You require of us. We pray, O Lord, that You would enlighten our eyes with understanding. And Lord, as You shape our perspective on who You are, may You enlarge our vision about Your greatness and our confidence in You as our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 7, this is the word of the Lord. A Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in You do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, The wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Thus far the Word of God, and may He write His Word upon our hearts. As we come to Psalm 7, I've noted a pattern thus far in the Psalter that after we meet those two gateway to the Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, that we have encountered in Psalms 3 to 6, this alternating pattern of morning and evening, morning and evening, driving us to prayer, and it's linking those Psalms together. Well, that pattern of morning and evening stops here. But what doesn't stop here is the conflict theme that we have seen repeatedly. If Psalms 3-6 to focused upon David's distress in the days when Absalom 
drove him out of the city. Psalm 3 certainly did, and the others probably did. We now turn to a different conflict at a different time. David writes this Shigeon, more on that in a minute, as a song to sing to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, we don't hear anything in the rest of the revealed Word of God about a particular Cush who caused David trouble, but we do know of various Benjaminites who gave David years of difficulty. Saul and his cronies. And most commentators, therefore, connect this psalm to the protracted period of persecution by Saul and his supporters against David. Perhaps Cush is one of those men in the inner circle of Saul slandering David to Saul, telling Saul that David was out to kill him or out to cause him great harm or out to turn the people against him or to undermine his leadership and leave Saul vulnerable to enemy attack. And we remember how incessant Saul's pursuit was of David. David had stayed in the royal court as Saul's jealousy grew, but eventually when the king starts throwing swords at you, or sorry, spears at you, you know it's time to leave. And he does. And those years were painful as David was driven from the sanctuary of God, driven from friends like Jonathan, driven from his wife, his family. He's hiding out in caves. He's in the Judean wilderness. He's in Moab. He's in Philistia. And as all this is going on, while David is not a sinless man, he lies multiple times, he's racked with anxiety, he struggles to believe God's promise, he is filled with rage in certain moments, but during that whole season, he never openly slanders Saul or seeks Saul's life. He could have killed him twice, and he doesn't. Rather than seek revenge, David gives the whole thing to God. In these days of David's humiliation, much like or prefiguring the Lord Jesus, he kept entrusting himself to Him who judges justly. Remember, that's what Peter says our Savior did. He he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He was threatened, he didn't strike back. He gave the thing to his Father. That is what David is doing here in the psalm. And that's an overarching lesson to learn. Now, David's emotions are <clears throat> wild and erratic. The term shigion is likely derived from the verb to wonder, to be scattered about physically and emotionally. But David does what we should all learn to do, bring our tumultuous emotions and situations to the God who is just. And as David does that, let's see four things together. First, we start with David's resolve in verses 1-5. to His resolve. While David's need for deliverance is acute, verse 1 begins with a settled fact. O Yahweh, my God, in you, literally, not, do I take refuge, but rather, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. That's not how the ESV puts it, but it's what the original is communicating. It's a fixed position. I have taken refuge in you, my God. David is saying, Yahweh, I've placed myself in your hands. I'm under your care. That happened at some point in the past. And on the basis of this fixed relationship where you are my God, I seek you now in this emergency. And never, brethren, pass over in the Psalms or any other portion of Scripture 
that personal expression, my God. You see it there in verse 1 and again in verse 3. Oh Lord, my God. David clings to the covenant Lord. He rests in Yahweh. His relationship with Yahweh isn't formal. It isn't some tradition, a mere fixed ritual. There isn't simply an acknowledgement of the deity in the abstract because that's what everybody does. No, his devotion is focused on the Lord with great personal intimacy. We hear the same kind of thing with the Apostle Paul, don't we? You remember Galatians 2.20? It's one of those verses that most of us are familiar with. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Or Philippians 3.8, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, there's gripping personal attachment. And David likewise here declares that he is gripping the Lord is God. There's knowledge of God. There's history with God. There's communion with God. There's friendship with God. There's confidence in God. Is that what we have? That we can come and call the Lord our God. You, O oh God, are my shelter. You're my portion. You're my place of protection at all times. Whatever is unfolding in the world, whatever hostility is coming against me, you are the strong tower to whom I run and I find safety. That's a settled position. It's a resolve. And yet David still needs saving. But do you see, he runs to God not with a foxhole faith. I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as you get me out of this mess. No, he is resolved to rest in the Lord. Is that the posture of our souls? Do we express personal reliance upon our God. Brethren, how would that reliance be seen in your life? That's pretty simple, isn't it? The impulse of a man of faith when trouble comes is to fly to the Lord, to go to His listening ear. Is that your impulse? Are you a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl of prayer? The formalist the religious pretender isn't a person of devoted prayer. And if, if he prays, his prayers are formulaic or they're filled with requests devoid of resolve. Now David is about to quickly move to petition, but he begins with a relationship. He begins with a declaration of trust. And isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? The former prayer Jesus gave, how does it start? Our Father... Well, do we have that sense of intimacy as we come to our God? And then the intimacy moves to emergency. Second half of verse 1. O Lord my God, save me from all of my persecutors and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. This is an intense scene. David is being hunted. Multiple persecutors have overwhelming power. He describes like a lion to rip into shreds. In other words, Lord, if you don't intervene, I'm a dead man. Now, we know David is a great warrior, but there's no presumption in him that he'll have a 
Samson-esque moment and kill a host of his enemies. He's acknowledging, I'm weak, I'm helpless, I stand in need of divine mercy. And that's always true of us. Apart from the Lord, we are nothing. And we can do nothing. I'm reading a book with one among you tonight. It's John Owen's great work on temptation. It's this volume after on mortification. And he has this wonderful little statement that's just stuck with me for years. We are weakness itself. We are weakness itself. Do you realize that? David does. You know, sometimes in our pride, we act like we can handle situations. David had moments like that. The Nabal episode where David just blew a gasket. Interestingly, it's right in the middle of the two times he spared Saul's life. Where Nabal won't help him. David and his men had been a wall of protection around Nabal's shepherds. And he goes seeking Nabal's help. And Nabal says something like this, Am I going to give my water and my food that come from my stuff and give it over to you that's from my sheep? You get the idea? How dare you think I'm going to give to you? It's my stuff. And David exploded. And if it weren't for Abigail's intervention by the mercy of God, he would have killed every man in that household. But here it's clear. David isn't having a moment of temporary insanity. He's thinking rightly. And he sees Yahweh is my avenger. The Lord is my protector. He's the sovereign king who overthrows my enemies. And I'm looking to him. Save me, he says. But the deliverance he wants here is a total rescue. Overcome every foe. And as he prays for help, in verses 3-5, to notice how he reveals the deep pain of this persecution. There are three if clauses there which spell out the hurt in David's heart. The slander that's been spoken against him. And these clauses serve as an emphatic denial of what's being claimed. Verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. David's being slandered. David is saying, I haven't done these things. But notice how he says it. He didn't just tell God, I didn't do this. His prayer invites the scrutinizing gaze of the Almighty. David submits himself to the Lord for personal examination. He believes he's innocent in the whole thing, but he calls down God's curses on himself if he has done these things. Lord, if I've done it, let them chase me. Let them pursue me, catch me, kill me if I've conducted myself with this wickedness. And Lord, You know the truth. David believes that nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. And he's not trying to live like the Lord can't see. He's conscious that everything he does is before the Lord's all-seeing eye. Dear friends, we will take great care how we live and how we pray when we walk with a healthy sense that the eye of the Lord is upon us. When we believe that the Lord searches out our hearts. Do we live with the resolve that our actions, that our thoughts are laid bare 
before the eyes of our God? Is our awareness of God fleeting? Is our fear of Him tied to certain moments? Moments of public worship where we rouse up a sense of God's presence? Or times when many eyes are around and we have a little more fear of the Lord than other times? Or do we live before the face of God and actually invite His penetrating gaze? Lord, search me and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me, lest I fall under your curse. Maybe we can all learn a lesson here from David that when slanderers come against us, that we ask the Lord, Lord, have I done what they say? We pray for vindication, but we also pray for clarity about our own sin because I know my heart is deceitful. So Lord, make the matter plain to my soul. This is David's resolve. But then secondly, see with me, David's hope. David's hope. Now, most of us probably don't think of Yahweh's judgment as a source of our hope. But it is. If you are wickedly slandered and chased for slaughter, the notion of God coming in judgment to defend you, to be a warrior on your behalf, would be a source of great hope. And that's the situation here. David's attackers are ruthless men filled with sinful anger. But David stakes his soul on the fact that Yahweh is angry with the sinfully angry, stubbornly proud people. And again, as I keep saying to you in the Psalms, David knows his God. His prayer is rooted in the revelation of God's character, that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That while he's slow to anger, his anger is kindled against those who rebel against him and attack his people. So David prays, recalling the great prayer of Moses when the ark of Yahweh was carried in front of the people. Moses would pray, Numbers 10, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Do you see the echo here? Verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. The bastion of truth for battered believers is the doctrine of God's judgment. He has appointed a judgment. The day is coming when, verse 7, the assembly of the peoples will be gathered about the Lord. And the Lord, verse 8, is the judge of the peoples. Now, David's trouble is focused upon people in Israel, a particular Benjaminite attacking with other Benjaminites helping out. But the idea in verse 8, David is saying, is the judgment's universal. The Lord judges the peoples. And it anticipates a day when God has a people among all the peoples and He will bring all into judgment. Paul uses this very point in his sermon at Athens in Acts chapter 17, where they are enamored with new ideas. And Paul rattles their cage with the idea of universal judgment. All people everywhere must repent because, Acts 17.31, God has fixed a day which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Who is that man? It's the God-man. You're right, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope of escape from God's judgment is, as Psalm 2 already put it to us, to kiss the Son. 
We take refuge from God in God. He provides the hiding place for His own justice. Or more specifically, as the New Testament fleshes out, God gives His Son to satisfy His justice against us for our sin. But if you don't have a covering, if you act like you don't need a covering because you think God doesn't see, you will not stand in the great day of wrath. If Yahweh isn't your God, and if you abide in your evil, you will face the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And how do you think it's going to come out for you? Well, how did it go for the world at the flood? And how did it go for Pharaoh? How did it go for Jericho? How did it go for Nabal? How did it go for Ahab? And on and on we could go. No man shall stand before the Lord in his justice. This means that while David wants deliverance, he's praying for that in the present. He knows, and take this to heart, he knows his ultimate hope lies not in this world. He's looking to a future judgment. He's looking to a time when the curse and men who abide under the curse, who love darkness, when they will be eliminated. When they will be made to answer for their crimes and cut off from the scene. It's really the same cry as the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6, who pray, O sovereign Lord, faithful and true, how long until you avenge our blood on those on the earth? Because they know on that day there will be freedom, there will be lasting peace, there will be the removal of all sorrowing and sighing for the saints of God. And brethren, if there wasn't a time like that coming, when all wrongs would be made right, what despair would seize us this evening if criminals kept getting away with stuff, if politicians had no ultimate accountability, if government-sanctioned crimes like the murdering of the unborn and sanctioning the mutilating of children's bodies and outward gender altercations or covering up lies and so forth, if these things weren't brought to justice, how could we go on? The doctrine of God's judgment is a fearful thing, yes. But for the believer in whom there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, it's a hope-filled thing. Murderers, rapists, liars, those assaulting Christians, they will stand before El Shaddai, God Almighty, and they will reap His wrath. And then, we will be free. This is why we keep praying, Thy kingdom come. That's why we cry out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Turn our prayers into praise. Make us sing the hallelujah chorus of Revelation 19. That the Lord God, the Almighty reigns and He has judged our enemies. But then the next thing David says might unsettle you. He prays, verse 8b, Judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. That's a bold prayer. And maybe you're thinking, I don't want to be judged by my righteousness. That's why I need Jesus. Well, David isn't saying here that his righteousness is a God righteousness. He's not saying he has a thorough holiness that could stand the scrutiny of the total perfection of God. Now, what he's saying is this. Judge me in my integrity in this situation. 
In other words, I haven't done what they accuse me of doing. If men were the judges, David would be declared guilty. But Lord, you know the truth. So David invites the Lord to judge him in the matter. Now, brethren, you can't pray like this unless you're actually concerned for holiness. The doctrine of judgment gives hope. But for the believer, it also provokes purity. Because you ask the Lord to look at the integrity of your heart. You aim to honor the God who judges. Was that how we live? So that when we reach the last day, we won't hear those dreadful words, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Or, you wicked and lazy servant. There is now prepared for you nothing but wrath. David wants, verse 9, the evil of the wicked to come to an end, which would imply he doesn't want evil in himself either. He wants the godly to be established knowing that the Lord tests the mind and the heart. And while David is innocent in this particular situation, notice he still has a concept of his need for a Savior. Verse 10, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Upright here doesn't mean those who have never committed a sin. It means those who have run in their sin to the Lord for refuge and trust in the mercy of God. We need mercy because our God, verse 11, is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is not lukewarm about sin. Sin angers Him every day. Don't listen to even the modern evangelical church that looks at a sermon like Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and looks down upon it as that's a false view of who God is. No. Look at what Scripture is telling you. God feels indignation every day. Matthew Henry puts it this way. This jumped off the page. As His mercies are new every morning toward His people, so His anger is new every morning against the wicked. How might we live differently if we took this statement to heart? If God hates sin, if He feels indignation against it every day, what should be my attitude to sin? I should hate it. I should flee from it as the very thing that God abhors. Shouldn't the thought of indulging in sin terrify me? Because God feels indignation against sin every day. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now this anger from God that's present every day, it's a, it's a settled reality. It may not erupt in immediate judgment, but the holiness of God recoils from sin. And this is why we need a shield, a covering. The Lord Jesus Christ who satisfies the justice of God for all who believe in Him. But without this shield, if you ignore God, if you scoff at His righteousness, you're only storing up wrath for yourself in view of the coming day of judgment. 
Again, the hope of the persecuted is the fact that God hates sin and God will crush sinners. And without that truth, we would forever remain in a ruinous, miserable world. You know, it's interesting today, the very people denying the judgment of God with their all-you-need-is-love claims, at the same time, impose their own judgment and are filled with anger at the violation of their standards. It doesn't make any sense. Well, sin doesn't ever make sense. It's illogical. It darkens the mind. And oh, the tyranny that's present in those who deny judgment and then judge in unrighteousness. But the vision being cast before you by David is of a Lord who is righteous and who will make not some fantasy of justice, but true justice roll down. And in that, David David takes comfort. Third, we see David's glimpse. Verses 12 to 16. Now in these verses, David moves from the doctrine of judgment generally to actually glimpsing the judgment unfold. What will it be like if man remains opposed to God and rebelling against Him and then meets God in the judgment? It will be like an encounter with a great warrior. Verse 12, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He'll sharpen his blade for the slaughter. And in case you missed the point, there's a second picture. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. What a frightening picture this is. If you refuse to turn from sin and bow to God, and heed His voice, and thereby receive His mercy, if you just carry on in your corruption while He's born with you, while you breathe His air, if that kindness to you doesn't produce repentance, then fiery retribution will be waiting. The hardened sinner will meet God with His sword drawn. The arrows of the sovereign king, which are deadly and have the rebellious locked in their sights. So there will be no escape. And I want you to see the personal nature of the judgment here. Yahweh's arrows, David says, he has prepared, that is, the Lord has prepared for him, for the, rep- the particular unrepentant sinner. In this world, Corrupt people can skate by as they do lesser evils, but evil still. Or as they commit unnoticed evils that are in themselves heinous. But escaping justice, for now, is no indication of future safety. Sinners will stand before the living God as He lifts His sword to strike. And it is a terrifying picture. Indeed, the Scripture records this same imagery at least two more times that I want to mention to you. On the one hand, we have Revelation 19. And it echoes the picture here when King Jesus returns with a sharp sword coming out of His mouth with which He will strike down the nations. There again, we're back to general judgment. Psalm 7, where King Jesus coming with His particular sword at you because you won't repent. But in that day, there won't be any ability to think that the God of the Old Testament is harsh 
And Jesus is different. He's just full of love. Because there's one God and three persons, and the three persons are totally unified in character. To sin against God is to sin against the Son of God, and Jesus will be the one to administer the justice. You will meet with the offended Christ, and you will fall. Nahum chapter 1 puts it maybe the most darkly of all, that the Lord pursues His enemies into darkness. Revelation 6, people are calling out for the rocks to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, but you won't be able to do it. The Lord will pursue you. So there's a dark picture. Christ coming in judgment to strike down the wicked. But then there's another picture. In Zechariah 13, which the Gospel of Mark will quote, it speaks of a day when the Father declares, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. For you see, the sword of divine justice, that very sword that flashed in Genesis 3 in the cherubim's hand when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, that sword that says there's no way back to communion with God for sinners, that sword is plunged into the breast of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, who is struck in the place of His people. And this, brethren, is the wonder and the glory of the Gospel. The Father spares not His own Son, but gives Him up for us all, that we, His sheep, those upon whom He set His love, might go free. And Jesus, having suffered with our iniquities upon Him, having taken our penalty for sin, cleanses us of sin, satisfies the justice of God, and now we stand pristine in His righteousness. Therefore, we who believe do not meet the living God as a warrior to strike us down. We meet Him as a friend to defend us. That's the imagery David's calling out, isn't it? It's King Jesus coming for my, as my friend to defend me. But you can't have that comfort unless you repent. And yet we all recognize that many sinners dismiss the urgency of the message to repent. And while verses 12 and 13 picture the directness and the personal nature and the intensity of the judgment, verses 14 to 16 indicates that the judgment due the sinner may not come swiftly. The wickedness of the sinner has time in these verses to grow and bear fruit. The imagery David uses here is of the months of development in the womb. Look at verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. And by the way, the Scripture is clear to teach here, as in many other places, that sin arises in our hearts from within. Sin is not outside of us. It's inside of us. And we can do many things to shield ourselves from outside influences. But the problem is deeper. Wherever you go, you take the enemy with you. Because the enemy is within. Never forget that the devil and the world have a traitor in your breast. Your own heart. Sinful thoughts and patterns are slowly crafted by our own deceitful hearts. Then they become more fully formed. And then corruption is conceived, growing, and it gives birth to lies. James uses the very same birth cycle. Desire conceived, sin growing, 
and death to follow to press to us that we are the problem. But if we don't resist this growth cycle and run to the Lord, crying for repentance, asking for cleansing, if we give birth to lies, if we keep on sinning as though we're immune to judgment, judgment will find us. David pictures a sinner like a trapper making a pit, digging out a hole to capture prey, maybe in the context of the psalm, a sinner, a Benjaminite, on a hunt for David, aiming to slander. But then that trap becomes a snare to the sinner. Verse 15, he falls into the hole that he has made. 16, his mischief returns upon his own head and his own skull, on his own skull, his violence descends. We could think of a number of biblical examples, but Haman really rises to the top in the book of Esther. He hates Mordecai. He wants him dead. He arranges to see the Jews all killed, but he, he builds a gallows on which to hang Mordecai. But what happens? Haman is the one who is hanged. Haman sought the first place. Haman craved exaltation. Haman crafted destruction for the Jews, but in a remarkable unfolding of providence involving a sleepless night for the king and a dinner invitation from the queen, everything turns against Haman. And the crafty man is outcrafted by the Lord. So it will be for the sinner generally. The enemies of God will do all they can to eliminate the servants of God. And while they may have temporary success, the unrepentant posture leads them to falling in their sin while the church carries on. We saw it in Acts already this morning. We see it in Egypt with Pharaoh and the army falling. We see it with Daniel taken as a boy to live in Babylon and be deprogrammed as a Hebrew. And at the end of the book, guess who's dead? Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's son and Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And guess who's still alive? Daniel. God prevails. There is no victory for the wicked over the righteous. For the Lord will bring judgment on the unrepentant. And friends, that's a scary thing if you oppose the Lord. But if like David, you have run to God as your refuge, this is an encouragement. Yet, don't miss the image of cracked skulls. I know it's not pleasant, but it's Psalm 2 language. The king that God has set on Zion, his holy hill, holds an iron scepter which he wields to dash to pieces like pottery those who oppose him. You better not oppose King Jesus. Finally see, and very briefly, David's praise. The thoughts of, Dave, of God's protection and deliverance, it reminds David that God is worthy of praise. And he says, verse 17, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Note here that David acknowledges that Yahweh is due, that He is owed thanksgiving because He is righteous. We are obligated to express our gratitude for the uprightness, the flawlessness of God, the fact that He sets all things right. Now we know it's interesting in our world how many things are turned upside down and there's praise offered to the unrighteous. Our culture praises the so-called bravery of identification and sexual sin. Our culture retweets rotten words and makes videos of evil things go viral. Our culture celebrates twisting the truth and drunkenness and attacks on 
pro-life, pro-family, pro-freedom of speech proponents. But while the culture is giving thanks for unrighteousness, that is until that unrighteousness costs you something, like a drunk driver kills your child, or a liar steals your identity, they fail to recognize what's truly righteous, but we, we come and see God is righteous. And we praise Him for it. Because if corruption causes misery and grief, holiness and the putting of everything right, the making evil men pay, that brings joy. And it bursts gratitude from our hearts. Well, are you grateful at the character of God? His righteousness that you, you can't trust anything in the world, but who can you trust? The Lord. He is righteous. He never lies to His people. Brethren, do we recognize our obligation to give thanks to the God who does all things well? And I'll close with this thought. You know, when the trouble rages, as it does here for David, when he's running for his life, he still doesn't forget to praise. That's a really important point. I, I mentioned to you last week, I think, the value of singing the Psalms because there are many laments here. And they cover emotions that we don't usually think about in the context of worship. We want to come and sing a happy song. That's not how the Christian life is sometimes. Oftentimes, we're not, we're not happy. And we have a, a song to sing even in the midst of our hardship. But David's laments also show us something else. Because every single lament in the Psalter, except one, ends in praise. What does that teach us? It teaches us that even in the darkness of difficulty, there's always a reason to praise the Lord. And what is that reason? It's the name, the character of our God. Pursuers may seek to lay our glory in the dust. Slanderers may stoke false accusations against us. And evil men may give birth to horrible lies and rack our lives with pain. But our God reigns. The Lord will judge and afflict the wicked. He will save the upright in heart. And these are unchanging realities that must move our souls to sing to His glory. Why can you praise? Because your God will never fail you. And not one word of all of His good words will ever fall to the ground. Well, bless the Lord then, whatever you're going through. Bless the Lord, because He's worthy of praise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we praise You even now, before the day of our relief, that judgment day arrives. We praise You because You are unchanging in Your character. You are a God who does have indignation every day towards wicked and evil men and who rise up to be our defender, to ride the heavens to our help. Lord, we praise You that You are near to us, that You are pleased to be called our God. Lord, may we evidence that we know You as our personal Father, our Helper, our Friend, our near support, the shade at our right hand. And We ask, O oh Father in Heaven, that You would give us hope that is not rooted in the things of this world, but that's rooted in the future where Jesus Christ has assured us to gain an inheritance that can never fade away. Lord, hear us as we pray this th these things and conform our thoughts to Your will. 
For we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.